0: scripture makes it clear that we will one day get a new body. But what happens to us after we die and before we get our new bodies? Well, stay with us to find out the answer to this question and more. This is the question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee, and we hope that you'll be able to join us for the next 30 minutes with Bible in hand and an open heart as Dr. McGee answers the questions of his many listeners. We begin today's broadcast with this question from a listener in Nashville, Tennessee, who writes, could you please explain the meaning of water in the Gospel of John 1934?
1: Well, John 1934, I'll read 1934, but one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, now that's when Jesus was on the cross, and immediately came there out blood and water. Now, what is the meaning of that? Well, now let me turn over to 1 John, I think that I can give you an answer for from there. And 1 John 5, verse 6, this is he that came by water and blood, even Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit that beareth witness, because the Spirit is truth. And I think that the Spirit bears witness of the Word of God. The Spirit of God and the Word of God are tied together in Scripture. In other words, the Word of God is the track on which the Holy Spirit runs today. He moves in that area and only in that area according to the way I interpret Scripture. And therefore, this verse, I think, makes it very clear that the water speaks of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God. What is it that cleanses us from sin? The blood of Christ. Where do you find out about that? In the Word of God. Who makes that real to you? The Spirit of God takes the things of Christ and he makes them real to us and shows them unto us. And so what we have here then is interpretation of that. John thought it was strange that both Blood and water came forth, but now when he writes his epistle, he's able to interpret that for us, by the way.
0: According to this person in Macon, Georgia, he's spoken with several people who use Acts 2.38 as scriptural proof that baptism is essential for salvation. He says, would you please explain the meaning of Peter's statement?
1: And let me read Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, even in that scripture, I don't think that Peter's saying that baptism is essential to salvation, but he's asking his congregation to do that, that is, the audience he's speaking to. Now, again, let's put Scripture back in its context. You see, it's dangerous, the habit that people have today of taking a verse of Scripture out of context and attempting to interpret that Scripture. That is a sad mistake to do a thing like that, is to take Scripture out of context and attempt to interpret it without considering the context. Now, this was the day of Pentecost. And who is Simon Peter speaking to? A group of Gentiles from New Jersey or a group of Gentiles from Georgia? No, he's not speaking to them at all. He's speaking to an all-Jewish congregation. Did you know that the early church was 100% Jewish? I think that if you had been in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, that had you been there and been one of those that accepted Christ, you would been in a minority, friend. The early church was 100% Jewish, and there was no Gentiles there. He's speaking to a Jewish congregation, and now this is to be their outward testimony. And it was essential then as an outward testimony, baptism was. The washing was a manifestation because, you see, Israel had all kinds of washings and baptisms that they performed in the ritual of the temple. Now, Simon Peterson, look, you're to be baptized. Yes, but now you're to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, in the name of the Trinity, which they would certainly deny. So you see how important that this is if you put it back in its context, but to say that this is essential for you living in Georgia or up in New Jersey or here in California, you're just absolutely misinterpreting Scripture altogether.
0: The book of Deuteronomy is filled with numerous dietary laws specifying which foods could be eaten and which foods were forbidden. So a listener in Detroit, Michigan says, am I correct when I say these dietary laws were for the Jews and don't apply for us today?
1: Yes, these were dietary laws in the Mosaic system that God gave. And by the way, they have found out over the years that these dietary laws were good for the people. When the plague hit Austria, and I think it was... uh, 14th or 15th century, the Jews were blamed for it because none of them took the plague. And it was obviously caused by the eating of pork at that time that caused the plague. Evidently, the disease came that route. And so the Jew, naturally not eating pork, was immune from that sort of thing. But let me come to this here. I read in Deuteronomy that certain things. Now, what about the Christian today? Well, let's come to the New Testament and read something here. I'm turning now just to one verse and this whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 8 chapter should be read and actually several chapters here in 1 Corinthians should be read in this connection. But this verse is adequate to answer you. But meet, Commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. Meat does not commend you to God, friends. It doesn't make any difference whether you eat it or whether you don't eat it. That hasn't anything to do with your relationship to God. It may have everything to do with your health, your physical health but it doesn't have anything to do with your relationship to God. Oh, that people today would begin to see that there is a distinction between the Old Testament and the law and the New Testament and grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ. The law was given by Moses, John says, but grace and truth came by the Lord Jesus Christ and that we're related now to Christ. And it's our relationship to him, not to some little diet that we follow or something like that. That hasn't anything in the world to do with it at all. And that is something today that right now the distinctions are not being made today, even by many fundamental men. And that is dispensational distinctions in the word of God. That's sort of gone out of style. Uh, we have a new fundamentalist today. To begin with, he doesn't call himself a fundamentalist, and I'm glad he doesn't because he isn't a fundamentalist, but he belongs to that class. He carries the Schofield Bible. He says that he follows it, that he doesn't depart from it, but he does depart from it, and he makes no dispensational distinctions, and today the emphasis that he's putting upon is this life down here, the counseling, and that we're to shape up down here. And certainly the church needs to shape up down here. No question about that. But the long view, not the short view, is the important thing. The emphasis is being put upon the short view. Now, the long view is that there is an eternity to be gained. There is a heaven to be gained. There is a hell to be shunned, and that's the reason Christ came. He did not come in order that you might reach your potential. He came that he might save you from hell. That's the reason Jesus Christ came.
0: After reading about the New Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, a listener in Colorado Springs, Colorado asks, Why is it necessary to have walls around the New Jerusalem?
1: And may I say to you, that is a good question that you've asked. And you do not maybe know how good it really is. And I am so happy that you asked that because I had a feeling that when I went over this, that there'd be many folk that would miss this in Revelation. And I'll just turn now and read two verses in Revelation 21. And you ought to read the whole chapter It's the New Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. It's the dwelling place of the church for eternity. Here is where you're going to get your permanent address, by the way. And if you could find out the number of your street in the New Jerusalem, you could have all mail sent there. But we're not given our street numbers yet. But this is the New Jerusalem. Now, I'm just going to read these two verses The first one is Revelation 21, verse 10. And verse 10 reads like this. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. Now, then he goes on giving the description. Having the glory of God And her light was like a stone, most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. That's the diamond, by the way. And it had a wall, great and high, and had twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and names written in the gates, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And on the east, three gates." And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and in them the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates of it and so on. And I just passed down now from that and come down to verse 18. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper. That's diamonds. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. Now, may I say to you, here is a picture, a very dramatic picture, and it's been really difficult for interpreters to quite understand just how it looks. And I'm not sure that I understand exactly how it really looks. It's certainly awe-inspiring, and it actually to me, is the wedding ring of the church. This is where we're going to live through eternity. And I think as you get off and look at this city, as John did, what he's looking at is a beautiful wedding ring. These big high walls around the city, they're not for protection. They're not needed for protection. And they're diamonds. What is it that you have? The streets of the city are of Pure gold. They make the band, you see, that goes around the finger. And the diamond, the walls that are so high, are the setting that's in the ring. And the gates, we're told elsewhere, are pearls. What a beautiful piece of jewelry the New Jerusalem is. And it's like looking upon a glorious big wedding ring that's actually 50. 1,500 miles long, I tell you, and a big diamond setting in that, that's the walls. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Now, I think that's the picture that is before us here, and it's actually too big for any of us to grasp, but it certainly ought to be breathtaking to those of us today that are Christians because there's nothing quite like this described anywhere. No man has ever conceived of anything quite as great as this is.
0: Discipleship is a term that's used regularly in our churches today. So this person in Palm Beach, Florida asks, should all Christians be discipled?
1: May I say to you that we all need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ. We're told to study, to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that Needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And Paul says to preach the word of God. But this term disciple is a term that has become popular today. And I personally feel like that it's rather lightweight stuff, that it sounds very good. But some of the folk that are doing discipling today need to be discipled, if you ask me. And I think that today there are too many that want to do the discipling and not enough that feel like they need to be discipled. None of us ever reach the place that we do not need to be discipled, that is, by the Holy Spirit and by the Lord. Now, the second question that comes from this same listener, is there a scriptural commandment To make disciples of all men. Yes, we are told that we are to make disciples, not of all men, but rather of all, I think, that are believers today. And my feeling is that it should be done by someone who is competent as a teacher to do the teaching. Teaching is the important thing that is needed today not discipling, and then define discipleship. Well, may I say to you that it's not discipling we need, it's discipline that's needed today in the church. The expression disciple occurs in the Old Testament only in the prophecy of Isaiah, and it's translated one time by that in term, it's also translated instructed and learned and taught. But it's in the New Testament that we find this word, and it means a learner, and it occurs frequently. The meaning is one who professes to have learned certain principles from another and he maintains them on that other's authority. For instance, there were the followers of Jesus, the followers of John the Baptist, and actually of the Pharisees. They were called disciples of the Pharisees. Now, it's used in a special manner to indicate the 12 apostles. My feeling is that the word disciple today... Is not quite the term that should be used for Christians today. To begin with, it means a learner. It does not always mean a person is saved to be a learner, you know.
0: As Christians, we live with the hope that after our death, we will be in the presence of the Lord. But a listener in Lenora City, Tennessee says, What happens after we die and before we receive our new bodies? Are we disembodied?
1: No, I think scripture makes it very clear that they certainly are not disembodied uh, spirits in any way. In fact, Paul in 2 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, and I should turn to that, and let me read this to you. It says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, that is, this body of ours is... Ashes to ashes and dust to dust, it's going back to dust. These bodies of ours, we're told, are made out of about 16 different chemicals. And by the way, evolution is based on the way chemistry works. It's not biological, it's chemical. And that's one reason that evolution is beginning to fall apart in certain places. But our bodies are actually made up of these chemical elements. And these chemical elements are found in the soil and out there in the dirt. And your bodies and mine will return to the dirt. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. Now, we desire, and the older you get, there was a time when this verse of Scripture didn't seem to mean a thing to me. But I tell you, when you've got arthritis, you begin to groan in these bodies that we got. And we are told to groan in them. We are waiting for our house, which is from heaven. If so be that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. That is, we don't want to be a disembodied spirit. That would not be normal. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not that we should be unclothed, but clothed upon that mortality might be swallowed up in life. Now, I do not think that we get our new bodies. In fact, the matter is, I'm sure that Scripture teaches that we do not get our new bodies until the rapture of the church. But in that interval between the time we die and the rapture, we're not to be disembodied spirits. This is a section of Scripture that i worried with over the years and have never come to any definite conclusion do we have an intermediate body that is at the rapture we are to receive our new bodies these old bodies of ours that have been put in the ground and returned to the ground are to be raised now in newness of life sown in weakness raised in power sown in corruption raised in incorruption and these bodies of ours are to be raised and we're given a new body. Now in that interval is there an intermediate body? I've never been able to come to a definite positive conclusion but in my later years I am coming to the conclusion that there is an intermediate body. Now I have only this scripture that I've read to you But that is the one that I think, frankly, is rather conclusive.
0: According to a listener in Rancho Cucamonga, California, Charles Spurgeon once said that Christians who die are sleeping in Jesus. So she says, is he referring to the body or the soul? If he is speaking about the body, does not Scripture say that to be apart from the body is to be in the presence of the Lord?
1: Yes, he's referring definitely to our bodies, And that's the way Paul speaks of it, that these bodies of ours are actually put to sleep. And it's just like when you put a body in the grave, it's just like, you know, you put somebody in a motel for the evening. And when you do that, you expect you'll meet them in the morning. And that's the way that the Christian should think of burying his loved one. And by the way, that's another reason that we do not think cremation is a Christian way to bury. It's always been a heathen way, and it's being used a great deal today. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian or anything like that. If that's the way you do it, and if you feel that's the way you want to go, then fine, I can offer no objection. But you can see that When you put somebody in a motel, you don't burn them up for the night. You expect to see them in the morning. And that's what a Christian should feel about when he puts his loved one, a believer in Christ, in the grave. I had a funeral many years ago. An old minister and his widow was there. And everybody came by weeping because he was so beloved. He was a lovely, gracious man. And... When his wife or the widow came by, the best I could tell, she hadn't shed a tear. She reached down and kissed him on the cheek, and she said to him, she says, I'll see you in the morning. I like that. I'll see you in the morning. She's just putting him in the motel for the evening, you see, and she'll see him in the morning. May I say to you, that's what Spurgeon meant. It's the body that is put to sleep. The spirit goes to be with Christ. Uh, Trust that I made that clear.
0: As we come to the close of another insightful Questions and Answers program, we hope that one of your questions was answered today. If not, we have a number of helpful study tools by Dr. McGee that can assist you in understanding the Word of God. To receive a resource catalog with a listing of many of our CDs, books, booklets, and MP3s, simply call us anytime and leave a voicemail request with your name, address, and the call letters of the station, or browse our online store at ttb.org. We'll be continuing Dr. McGee's five-year journey through the whole Word of God this week on the Through the Bible radio program heard on this station. If you're unable to listen to our program during the regularly scheduled time on this station, and you have internet access, then... You'll be happy to know that you can hear any of Dr. McGee's lessons for the past five years. And then another option is to download one of our mobile apps from your Android smartphone or any of your Apple iOS devices. Did you hear an answer from Dr. McGee that maybe you thought someone else you know needs to hear? Well, think about getting this broadcast on CD to pass on to others who might benefit from the insights that Dr. McGee brings to the Word of God. We'd like to encourage you to take some time today and let us know that you're enjoying this program. Because we are a listener-supported ministry, we'd like to know that we're in your prayers. So take a brief moment and send us a letter or postcard or email and just let us know that you're standing with us in getting out the Word of God to the whole world. To contact our offices for the catalog, to purchase any of our resources, or to ask for the notes and outlines, call 1-800-65-BIBLE Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific Time. Or write to Questions and Answers in the U.S. Box 7100, Pasadena, California 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario N6C 6B1. Or visit us online at www.ttb.org. Now we pray that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. be this program soul. has been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of Through the Bible Radio Network.